This is Up for Debate Cherry Coke Summer, a look at the blockbusterless films of Harrison Ford. Tonight, American Graffiti. This is episode number 258, recorded July 8th, 2023. Hey man, I'm sorry if I scared you. You're gonna have to do one hell of a lot more than that to scare me. Yeah, but looking all over for you, man. Didn't nobody tell you I was looking for you? Hey, I can't keep track of all you punks running around here backwards. Hey, you're supposed to be the fast thing in the valley, man, but that can't be your car. It must be your mama's car. I'm sort of embarrassed to be this close to you. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised driving a field car. Field car? What's field car? Field car runs through the fields, drops cow shit all over the place to make the lettuce grow. Oh, that's pretty good. Hey, I like the color of your car there, man. What's that supposed to be? Sort of a cross between piss yellow and puke green, ain't it? Well, you call that a paint job, but it's pretty ugly. I bet you got to sneak up on the pumps just to get a little air in your tires. Well, at least I don't have to pull over to the side, just let a funeral go by, man. Oh, money. You know what? Your car's uglier than I am. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of, of Up for Debate, the debate podcast where the two hosts agree on everything. I'm Sean Jennings, joined, as always, by a man who uh, just can't get enough of our subject this summer. Uh, it, it was his idea, and we all have to pay the price. It's Matt Mariani. Hello, Matt. Sean, uh, I want you to repeat after me here, okay? You can repeat after me? Uh, maybe. I was a dirty bird. Matt's not grungy. He's bitching. I might I might call you I might say your boss. I don't know. Nope. Bitching. That's that's a word that comes up a lot in this movie. And uh as I was watching this this movie, uh which we haven't introduced yet, but um I was thinking about next next time, like if we ever did a rewatch of this, it would be kind of fun to have like a bitch encounter of like how many times they say the word bitchin throughout the movie. I think that would be an interesting thing to, to tally. I guess that was, I guess a, a popular word in the fifties um, or no sixties. This is in, this is 62. Yeah. So, so yes, early sixties. Yeah. Um, but they sure do say it a lot. They say a lot of things a lot. Um, the, the verbiage is going to be very, very key in this, in this movie review. A lot of, um, a lot of slang, a lot of catchphrases that uh, we'll, we'll sprinkle in throughout the night. But uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce the, it, the movie? It sounds like you got a lot to talk about, Matt. That's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, if you joined us last week, we went through a list of film franchises and movie collections to watch this summer. And we ultimately settled on one that I am tentatively titling until we come up with something better. The Ford Movie Company. Because uh, <laughs> I, I didn't come up with anything better. Uh all this summer, we'll be watching a series of Harrison Ford films uh, in chronological order. And for our first outing, we watched American Graffiti, uh, 1973's own, uh, directed and written by George Lucas, produced by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, and Matt, we should probably get this off our trust right away. Harrison Ford is barely in this movie. Uh, yes. We he has about four lines of dialogue. <laughs> he is. He is I, I was kind is. of annoyed that an hour plus into it, and I, I still was like, did I like not notice which one's Harrison Ford? He is nominally introduced, or he is nominally in the movie, and he's not even introduced until about 30, almost exactly 30 minutes in. Yeah. Um, uh, which yeah, I definitely did not know going into this movie. I figured he was like a... a important i mean this was this was his first this was like arguably his breakout role in a film um i read, yeah that led directly to if this isn't then what certainly was his breakout which was star wars sure yeah this this was um well i think this is what introduced him to lucas and and uh it said on, on wikipedia that he was a uh, a carpenter he was like doing carpentry work he was when he was called upon to to play the role um of uh, Bob Falfa. Bob Falfa is his character in uh, in American Graffiti. Um, he was Harrison Ford at the time was concentrating on a carpentry career, uh, and Ford agreed to take on the role only under the condition that he would not have to cut his hair. So therefore, they made him wear a hat. He wore a Stetson, uh, like a cowboy hat, basically for the 
entire film. All, all about aggregate, maybe like 15 minutes that he's in the film all put together. Maybe maybe 20 minutes, maybe being generous. But he's really not in this movie too much. Um, he plays, as we mentioned, uh, Bob Falfa, who's kind of like a... Um, he doesn't really get a lot of backstory. He's just he's just there. He's to a race. guy. He's a guy that wants to race. He has he, a car. He he wants to race the car, and he specifically he's been driving all over town looking for, um, John Milner, John played Milner. by Paul Lamat. Yes, he he wants to race him specifically, um, and and that's what uh, that's what his big motivation is. It doesn't really. The, I don't think a backstory or anything like that is really established. I will say though, I loved the hell out of his accent. What was he doing? That was exact. It's exactly it, it the was, point. What was he doing? I think the cowboy hat must have like cut off some circulation in his brain or something. I don't know. It was vaguely southern, but not really. Because I I couldn't tell if they they told him he had to like have a city accent. But then they gave him the, the cowboy hat, and so he said, like, well, maybe I'll try to put an affect on and make my character sound Texan. Only his Texan accent really sounded more like a Midwestern accent. And uh, ev- everything seemed to just kind of devolve into that into that Midwestern form, uh, which in itself really made me enjoy the scenes he was in. I, I, I couldn't get enough of, uh, of listening to him uh, talk that way. Very, very, uh, it just very, what was the word I wrote down in my notes? It was very, um, in, enchanting. Yeah. Strangely enchanting. No, he definitely enchanting. Exactly. has a screen presence, yeah. no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, where should we begin with, uh, our discussion about American graffiti here, Sean? The year is 1972, but it's 62. actually 1962. You're right. It was, filmed, it, was filmed in six, it was filmed in 72, but it takes place in 62, or it, was, it came out in 72, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so the year is about a decade in reverse. Um, did this did this start Happy Days? Was this what the inspiration yes. for Happy Days was? Because Happy Days came out two years later in 74, and it featured a lot of, uh, you know, like the similar themes taking place in the early 60s, late 50s era. And uh, it even had um, Ron Howard was in the show. Absolutely. Uh, actually, uh, more American Graffiti, the failed sequel, was actually Ron Howard's last credited film role. Um, mm. And he hasn't acted since. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. This this. This film, and you know, I, I at one point I was annoyed that Harrison Ford was barely in it, but then there is a lot to talk about. And it also is a pretty historical film. It's actually in the uh, Library of Congress's National Film Registry, um, where a number of things it did from obviously the sort of nostalgia um, film. This was really one of the first to sort of do it in the style, um, how it was shot um, in more of a vaguely documentary style the fact that it had no score and was scored entirely by uh popular songs there were a lot of things this film was uh, a first or at least uh firstly popular for and nominated for a best picture uh, oscar yeah this was i i think um a, a first role for many for many people that were involved. Uh, Ron Howard, we talked about before. This wasn't his first role, though. He was like a wasn't he in like the Andy Griffith show or something? He was like a he was like a kid kid actor. So he's he's been, he was around for a a while before this, but it was also a first for um, I think it was a first for I could be wrong about this, but. Um, uh, was it Richard Dreyfuss's first movie? It was what you know. I, I was curious about that. Jaws came out the year after this, um. Yeah, so I, I this probably and he was nominated for a Golden Globe. This was probably his first, uh, most notable film. Yes, I would think. So. I think so. I mean, just looking at 
looking at his filmography, this was yeah, definitely his first like major major success or major movie that he was in. Yeah, sure. Um so you had uh yeah, you had a lot of like introduction to a lot of a lot of famous folks. You had um Lucas, of course, George Lucas being uh one of uh one of his first if like he he had made like THX he had made before this THX, THX 1138 yeah. but this was his first uh commercially successful film yes. uh that he had uh directed and the money made from this went directly into funding Star Wars and yes. Indiana Jones after that um and you could even tell speaking of Star Wars um I I was looking for this and and I kind of came up with a little running list here um I saw some parallels between American Graffiti and Star Wars. I wanted to uh, see if there were any dots to connect here just because of the Lucas connection, the Harrison Ford connection. Uh, and tell me if you notice any more of the any more um, than what I what I have here. But I, there's a it's a coming of age story. Uh, it's a story about leaving home, leaving one's home to go on like to greater adventures, albeit we don't really get to see that part the greater adventures. Uh, this pretty much just localizes in one night all takes place in one, in one night and like an early morning, um, in, uh, somewhere in California, I'm going to say probably it's like, a, it's supposed to be like a California, like an LA suburb, right? Like that's the, uh, Modesto Modesto. Okay. Um, other parallels, there's uh, the, the adventure, so to speak, gets kicked off by a mysterious woman wearing white, right? Like in, in Star Wars that, you know, you can see the influence with like Princess Leia uh, and the R2-D2, right? The projector. Um, and this movie, it is um, the um, woman that I think is uh, Steve is the one that's like really... Is it Steve that's obsessed with her? Or I get there's these names are very. There's a remember the 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 the, the it's uh, Richard Dreyfus's character. Is like yes, really, Kurt. Yeah. Kurt. Okay, so Kurt is really yeah really upset. I think Steve is Ron Howard. That's Ron Howard's mm-hmm. character. Yeah, so Kurt is like really um, kind of obsessed with with following this this uh, lady in white. And trying to uh, woo her for the evening. Uh, we should mention. So that's that's kind of where my. Um, oh, and also I wrote Harrison Ford is Han Solo in both movies. He basically just plays Han Solo, which I think will be a trend this summer. I think we're going to see. We're going to notice a trend of Harrison Ford just playing Harrison Ford in every movie. Uh, which there's nothing wrong with that. Definitely not. Definitely nothing. I mean, no one can do it better than than the man himself. So uh, this, that definitely rings true for American Graffiti. As little of it as he actually is in, he is definitely portraying Harrison Ford. One other uh, connection I will mention is that uh, the uh, yellow air speeder that uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan use uh, is based on John Milner's yellow coupe from the film. So it kind of it, it's like poetry. It that rhymes. was intentional. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we can certainly, you know, one thing that kind of struck me is how this movie doesn't really have a plot. It, so it, interesting it, that you say that I I put this movie in a car in a in a category and I don't know if this category exists or not. It's, it's a category that I call. Uh, the uh, One Night Odyssey. Sure. Uh, there's there's several movies that I think follow the, this this trope or the, this genre. It's I would say it's more of like a trope. It's basically like everything is self-contained into one night. You saw this a lot in 2000s, like especially mid to late 2000s um, comedies. I mean, you see it uh, with Superbad. Uh, you see it with um, another of Michael Sarah's acting roles, Nick and Nora. Uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist follows that kind of trope, but it's like a one night adventure. Uh, you can you see it in um, like other 
just other other I'm thinking like like uh is it Harold and Kumar go to White Castle? I think they do this yeah. too. Oh yeah, like sure. The, yeah, this this movie was um this movie definitely would I think fit in that into that category. I know it's probably not the first to uh to do this, but um I I think there's you know in this in this category I would also mention it kind of all takes place in um, in one night, in like crazy one night, basic location, but it's very character driven. I would say this movie and this movie definitely holds true to that to that trope. It's very, very character driven, all mostly in one centralized location. Um, it's very reliant on its um, other actors and other characters to drive what what kind of story there is. There really isn't much of a story story other than just each of them kind of getting up to their own shenanigans and getting out of it i think it's very very light in that regard um i mean the most drama that happens is the the culminating race speed race that happens at the end um but things are i mean you know uh drama or conflict appears and is very quickly resolved in this in these kinds oh of yeah well the other thing you know you mentioned the it sounds negative i don't mean it that way simplicity of the film um, this is, was an ultra low budget production. Uh, $777,000 was the budget. Then that's roughly equivalent to $5 million today, which is not much to make a movie. Um, and I think that actually helps the film feel smaller and more intimate uh, because they go up and down the same street about 40 times. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it wasn't expansive in yeah. terms of sets and locations. Um do we maybe want to go through, you know, I think you're right. It's really a character driven more than plot driven. Do we want to go through some characters and talk about their stories as the, uh, as the night goes on? Sure. Yeah, we could do that. So where they all meet up, uh, first off, we're introduced to them in the diner, right? Uh, it's Mel's diner. I think Mel's drive-in, which was actually a, uh, chain restaurant. Don't know if you knew that. Hmm. Um, Yes, it's still, it's uh, still open today. Can we can we get some Mel's Drive-in? Uh, there are seven still around in northern and so- northern and southern California, um, and there is a replica at Universal Studios uh, based on the one in the movie. Great that you can uh, eat it. I, I think I would like to. <laughs> I'll imitate the order that. Um, what is it? Uh, uh, I think Terry um, is it Terry that puts it in. It's like the two chili cheese dogs <laughs> that, that like it really long order with like cherry, two 10 cent Cokes. Yep. Yes. Uh, reminded me, I haven't had a chili chili dog of any kind in forever. And not one in my car. Certainly not. Not one given to me by a uh, server on roller skates. Definitely not. Nope. Um, uh, but, yeah, so we, the characters yeah. meet up at Mel's, and yep. it's really based around the, the four arguably main characters. You've got Steve and Kurt, um, who were both uh, leaving the next day to head back east, uh, as they say, to college on the East Coast. They'll be flying out in the morning. Uh, and then you have Terry, who uh, Terry the Toad, sort of the... Uh, let's say nerd of the group, if you will. And then of course, drag racing King, John Milner on his yellow coupe. Yep. And, uh, they're, they're, they have one goal. I think it's, it's kind of their, it's their, like you mentioned, it's their last night, uh, before kind of breaking up the, uh, the group, um, to go on their way to start college and their futures. um, and they have kind of one last uh, hurrah in this town. And mm-hmm. to them, that means chasing girls and irresponsible driving. There's a lot of irresponsible driving in this movie, Sean. What I mean by that is there's a lot of there's a lot of people talking and not looking at the road in this movie. Did you notice well, that? You know, one thing I know, because I, I, it's a nostalgia film. And nostalgia is very powerful, especially because we, we've seen it plenty. And by the way, Grease came out not long after this one as well. But there were films in the 80s for nostalgia in the 70s. And there were films in the 90s with nostalgia. for. It still happens today, although I think the time has sort of expanded a little bit. 
But everyone always is like, oh, kids today, they're so much worse than they were back then. Oh, they're in their phones. Oh, the technology and all this. It's like, kids back then were bad. I mean, there were greaser gangs. And there were and there was reckless driving and uh, just all around, just they were doing some bad. And what is with this town? And then this is the part where I'm like, is this yeah. how realistic is this? So I'm not like an expert of the time, obviously, but I'm like, was that a thing where they would just get in cars and just drive around? And like, that was the thing. I have no reason to think that's not true. I, I think it's, yeah, like in any time, it's just teens looking for something to do um, and cruising around town and you're. Your, your souped up cars is something I think kids still do today. Um, you know, go into, they go to a sock hop in one scene. They go to uh, the drive in a couple times um, and they get in some, yeah, fights with some greaser gangs. They go to a radio station. Yeah. There's like make out point. They always have, they find a, like a, you know, always those teenage spots where they go. Uh, on the top, it's always on the top of the like the overlook, overlooking the town, or like just outside of the city limit, off the uh, over, off the interstate. Yeah, so they they look for they look for those places. So what's um, yeah, I I just I just wanted to point out the the rampant, like, <laughs> yeah, people say that kids are are texting and driving or looking at their phones and driving these. These these teens had no regard. Like when it would, they would have full on conversations between not with people in the car that they're in, but people that are in other cars and just kind oh, of they like were shouting weaving, across traffic at them. Yeah. They would they they jumped out and and cut the tires on the other car while they were at a light. They were yep. revving their engines loudly. Um, they were all smoking. I mean, I think i I would point to I would point to the one scene with um where where. Harrison Ford um, is uh, talking to he's like there he's like trash talking um, his opponent that he's he's trying to race him and he uh, he's like um, he's like having this full like insult battle across the way they're like where they're like you know jabbing and jousting at each other's like making fun of each other's cars and each other's clothes and everything and uh, I just wanted. I just really wanted one of them to just rear end the other, another car while, while they're like turned while their face is kind of like in profile, like talking to the other car. I just wanted him just smack into like a car in front. The guy to like run out and be like, Hey, you're going to pay for this. I mean, we do get, we do get that scene where, um, yeah, that minor accident, there is a minor accident. And then, uh, but, but, uh, toe, I think is it, is it, is it, uh, toad who's involved in it? Is yeah. It Terry, Terry, Terry yeah. the toad. Yeah. Yeah. Who's just kind of just a who, just a who in this movie? Gets out of it. Should we talk about him first? I I, I was rooting for him, uh, mm. played by the great Charles Martin Smith, mm. um, who you may know from films like uh, Deep Impact, uh, Dolphin Tale, uh, BAFTA Award nominee, mm-hmm. um, a fantastic actor, Air Bud, um, which he directed. Oh. Interestingly enough. Um, yeah, so obviously kind of the, the nerd, the punk of the group. He, he's the one who doesn't have a car. He drives a scooter. Um, and at the outset, he uh, Steve hands the keys to him and says, you can have it while I'm gone. I won't need it anymore. Um, and that sets him off on a night of, of wild adventure with a young uh, woman he meets named Debbie. Yes. And that's, that is, I mentioned before, that's kind of the catalyst for this whole adventure. Um, it, it kicks them off on their night. Um, they're, they're trying to find her. Then they get in, they, he gets up to some shenanigans with her. Um, I think they find, then they find out that she is a prostitute. Um, and he's, uh, he tries to tries to leave her at one point. Then he gets scared because there's like a killer on the loose, or uh, she's talking to him about like a like a murder that took place or something, and he freaks out. And then, uh, 
yeah, there, it, it really is. Um, it really is. There's there's a certain point where they all kind of like break up and like do their own separate things, and they all come back together at the end of the night. Um, yeah, good I, chunks I, of this movie that yeah. Good chunks of this movie that I just don't, I just don't remember. I don't know why. It just <laughs> well, it was like... again, it, it wasn't an A to B to C plot. It was, it was a little bit, no, uh, more scattered storytelling, yeah. which is fine because mm-hmm. I think, not to get to my sort of overall thoughts on, it, I thought the movie did a great job at the beginning and the end with an entertaining middle, where they started strong, they wrapped it up strong. And yes, the middle kind of branched out a bit, but I think all the individual bits were relatively enjoyable. Um, again, we, we don't have to go through all of them. John Milner uh, picking up 12 year old Carol, uh, who he drives around all night and has some fun with. Yes. We, we uh, need to talk about this. We very amusing. So, so what do you, what do you think about older men picking up young women, Matt? What, what's your opinion on this? this? Um, and while you, no. while you're going through your opinion, it's I can hear you, but I'm going to get some water. So it's you gonna, go off, King. Okay. It's going to be a no from me. Um, I will quote from the Wikipedia once again um, that Mackenzie Phillips, who portrayed Carol, uh, was only 12 years old at the time of filming. Uh, and under California law, producer Gary Kurtz had to become her legal guardian for the duration of filming. She couldn't even be in this movie uh, unless the producer legally adopted her for the time being. Um, So, and, and, and in order to get the permissions for, for the, for the film, uh, I think the situations that she is put in are kind of appalling um, and would definitely not be okay uh, in 2023. She says rape a lot. She does. I did notice that. And I was like, again, is that like a 50s thing where people were just like, ha, 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 it's a funny thing. Because <laughs> um, I guess it happened a lot. Like, I don't. Yeah, that was odd. She's 12. She's I was I was saying yeah. we were going to get water. She's 12 years old. Oh, I heard you. Actress I heard you. Mackenzie. Yeah. Mackenzie Phillips is also 12, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah very so strange. Just to reiterate. I just want to I just want to reiterate that for because some of the things that we're going to say, I want you to the listeners to keep in mind that she's 12 years old. Um, she does say the word rape a lot in this movie. She is picked up by a an old as you, as you said, an older man um, who is I think he's supposed to be like 18 or 19. Um, probably in the, in the movie, probably around around that age. Um, and he's, he's not to his credit. He's not pursuing her. Thankfully he was pursuing, I think her, her older sister and her older sister, like just gives her up. Yeah. And it's like later and is basically just like, yeah, you hang out with them. It'll be fine. Sure. Uh, the part that is m- the most uncomfortable to watch for me though, is one of the later scenes when, um, he, the guy, uh, it basically is, has had enough. John has basically just had enough. And he's like, look, like it's been building inside me like a volcano all night. <laughs> his, his bit there. And yeah. I know what he's doing. I get it. Like it's, he's trying to use reverse psychology and, and have her be like creeped out by his advance so that he, she'll tell him she wants, he wants her to tell him his, her address so he can drop her off at home. And she won't tell him, the address because she's having so much fun on this like night of, of debauchery and, and merriment. Um, but that was really uncomfortable to watch him like basically come on to this, this child um, and, and make advances on this kid. And then, yeah, she's understandably creeped out and is like, here's my address. Please drive me home. Cause now you've made me uncomfortable. Yeah. She had a, uh, an actual very good and entertaining and curious storyline that I think ended rather oddly. Um, it I, was I, interesting. And I, I, for that moment, I did enjoy their, the high point of their relationship to me was when, um, uh, he, he rescues her. Yeah. Right. Well, again, she, another she, creepy moment. Yeah, it is. But I, that, I mean, and to say that that was the high point of the whole thing, uh, it still means it's it's uh, it's not it's not a very high point. We're still we're still starting pretty low here on the totem pole. But um, 
yeah, he rescues her from um, a group of other. There, there's another guy that is like creeping on her, basically, or, and uh, yeah, he, she, she she gets mad and leaves the car because he tells his friends that he's babysitting. They're, he's at the drive-in, um, and then she gets creeped on. He comes in to her rescue. Um. Yeah. Well, like, you know, she did serve a very valuable story point, I think, showing his paternal side, kind of the opposite of the tough guy thing. Um, So that that was a very interesting um, storyline for him. It it showed some character development. It did. I mean, for me, after that happened, I would have just had him drive her home and maybe she would just tell him she would have been like understandably shook up by the, the events. I don't think you had to have the whole like it's building inside me like a volcano kind of thing. Um, but it was the seventies and I guess that was, uh, that was what passed for humor then. Yep. Um, what do you think otherwise about John? John's cool. Mm-hmm. John's cool. He's a nice guy. He takes care of the, the young lady. He's, uh, he's, he's kind of cool. I think my, I don't know if he's my favorite. He's up there. I think Ron Howard as Steve is probably my least favorite of the guys. Yeah, I never warmed up. He's wimpy. He's whiny. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have an interesting storyline because I don't really care about that romance. Um, I appreciated the sort of maybe calling it a twist as a stretch, but sort of the turnabout at the end. I did appreciate that. But also I was like he everyone else is off doing interesting things and he's just moping around. Um, so not, not my favorite. No, I, I, he's the only one I, he's the, I think the only character that I never fully warmed up with, uh, or warmed up to kind of sad, but, um, I also thought that in the beginning of the movie, I really liked Lori, his, his, his steady. And, uh, she was interesting to me because she was very passive aggressive in a very funny way. Um, like when he, the first scene where they're together in the car and, uh, he says to her that basically he's seeking an open relationship. He wants to go to college and not have to worry about her at home. And he wants to like, he thinks that test experimenting will help that like, like strengthen their relationship. And he pitches this to her and I, I just love it. She just is like, okay, that sounds good to me. And then she immediately, when they, they go to the dance, she's like, goes right for the, like, she goes right for the floor with like another guy immediately yeah. and <laughs> throws it right back at him. But again, the movie disappointed me with her. The movie disappointed me with another character here where um, they have her like kind of break down and she, she falls, she goes from being like a very strong female lead to being a very like kind of passive and, and weak female actress. It was, or a female role rather. Um, and that was, that was hard to, that was hard to watch. I didn't like, I, I, I really, I even wrote in my notes. I was like, Lori is my favorite character in this movie until that. Happened. Well, she, she's played by the great Cindy Williams who played, um, Shirley on Laverne and Shirley for many years. Um, unfortunately, actually, I believe she passed away this year. Uh, but I think to me, the starting point of that, of that question of high school romance, is it real? Does it translate to real life is interesting. Like, I think you can do there's some there really is something there. And I kind of wish they had explored that relationship between them more rather than just sort of the base level bickering disagreement. Let's sleep with other people kind of thing, because um, you don't really see a lot of passion. Really, to me, I think the only time you see it is right after the crash where she's in the car and you sort of see that moment. And that's not even much. So um, I think a, a wasted opportunity with two very good actors. No, I agree. Um, it's yeah. I mean, it's a it's a choice. I think they they wanted to go the route where you know he, they can't live without each other. They can't bear to be apart, and like this, and, and then they have the conversation at the end of the movie. Uh, but I thought it yeah it would have been would have made for a much more interesting film if uh, if they had kind of you know this was a little early for circumventing um the trope but if if they had just kept her as that like yeah all right you want an open relationship i'll show you what that looks like and i'll just you know kind of just pursue one right in your face and and just 
like you think you're going to be going off and um, doing your own thing. This is what I'm going to be up to here. Um, so, although I will say before we leave, before we leave Ron Howard's, um, Ron Howard's, uh, Steve character, he does have perhaps my favorite line in this whole movie. And, okay. uh, if we could, if we could, if you were, if we could somehow, I know, I know we, I don't know how to, I don't know how to edit things in, but if we could put like some kind of audio clip into this uh, podcast, uh, it would, it would be this, I think. Um, when they're at the sock hop, he says to the principal, the principal is like getting oh, in his yeah. face about like dancing too close. Right. And he turns to him and he says, go kiss a duck marblehead. Go kiss a duck, Marblehead, and I think that just no his his delivery of it. Um, one of my favorite lines. The second, my second favorite line, by the way, is um, is spoken by the the girl in white. Um, when uh, she's confronted by a, I guess, a former lover or former client, maybe. Um, it's uh. Uh, she says to him, if brains were dynamite, you couldn't blow your nose. Another great line. But so those are my, those are my top two, my two favorite lines, uh, coming in from this movie. I I, I might add on top of that Hmm. when Terry is outside of the liquor store trying to get someone to buy him liquor and he goes up to the gentleman and he goes, sir, I lost my ID in a flood. I'd like to get my uh, some old Harper hard stuff. Would you mind? He goes, why? Certainly. I lost my wife, too. Her name was an ID, though, and it wasn't in a flood. But I know what you're going through. Yeah, that 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 reminded me of like an air. It was like an airplane joke. Yeah, was, yeah it was just a little. And yeah. I don't like it. I had to I did like a double take. I'm like, what? <laughs> it was like, a, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So th- this movie gets smart in some areas. It does. It gets uh, it gets it definitely gets witty. Um, uh, we talked about her before, but, um, uh, Carol, Carol has some, some good, uh, good witticism, good moments, uh, when she blackmails, uh, John basically, yeah, into, um, uh, not turning her into the cop. Great moment. Um, when she, she gets them out of that whole, like pull over, pulled over situation. Uh, Yeah, they're. You, you talk about some of the dialogue of the film. I'll just read one more here. Uh, when they toss the water balloon and get to the kind of car on car fight where the girl goes, hey, you got a bitch in car. He goes, yeah, I know. And she goes, in fact, your car's so neat. We're going to give you our special prize. You want me to give it to you? And he goes, sweetheart, if the prize is you, I'm a ready teddy. And she goes, well, get bent, turkey, and throws a water balloon. <laughs> get bent, turkey. I love it. I love it. Um, speaking of shenanigans in this movie, they there's a scene where they cherry bomb a toilet. Yes. Sean, do you remember that? I I totally forgot that was a thing. Um, was that a thing in your in your youth growing up? Uh, no, Matt, because I went to school not in the fifties, uh, <laughs> where people were no. So I don't think anything's ever exploded inside any school. I've I was going to say in. that it it wasn't it wasn't a part of my youth either, but. Um, I think we might only be like one generation removed from that. Uh, that is, I mean, it's in, in the post nine 11 world, that's just kind of unimaginable. Well, that's we're, we're kind of in that awkward area. Like down toilets. It, it was where we were after it was fun, but before it was terrorism. Yeah. We, right. We, yeah, we missed our opportunity. We did. I think the seventies and eighties were probably the real golden age for, for cherry bombing toilets. Um, God, think about the the destruction though that that like the how expensive that is to re- I don't know, but you see it in a lot of movies, and I, I assume it was a thing, and maybe in real life, I don't know. I don't. I genuinely don't. Kind of come from somewhere. Somebody out uh, there, yeah. Talk about their. Tell us about your cherry Again. bombing toilet experiences. Is it a thing that you did? I don't know. Maybe you don't want to admit to that. Maybe you just tell us that a, you watched a friend do it. You watch your friend Terry cherry bomb a toilet. Um, 
One thing I also want to mention is that there's another character here we haven't talked about the the, the enigmatic Wolfman Jack, uh, who is a real person, a real actual radio DJ that uh, mm-hmm. um, Lucas and some of the other film producers uh, grew up listening to, and and he was uh, pretty active and popular at the time, the setting, the time of setting of this movie, the early '60s. Um, only Wolfman Jack is not does not appear in the movie, does he? Uh, we get a uh, when when he they finally make it to the radio station. It's revealed that it's only a recording, and that Wolfman Jack is everywhere. Uh, he's like he's like kind of Santa Claus, almost like a like like Santa Claus exactly. He's he's like an omnis an omniscient like sub narrator. He doesn't really narrate. He kind of narrates it through through music, which I thought was really really cool. I thought that was a really well done feature of the movie. It's like the music matched up with the action in the film there was a lot of music very we could definitely talk about the the um uh the soundtrack and the choices very intentional mimicking the um action that we saw and i like that it was very organic that it, it, it came through the radio of these cars it came through wolfman jack um and his broadcasting so uh I thought that was cool that whole that whole thing, and then just for, you know the build up around like going to meet him, and um, I think it's um, who, who's trying to it's uh, Kurt. Kurt Kurt's trying yeah. to meet him, and uh, he wants to because he wants to read like a love message for um, the girl in white, and to to get her to notice him and stuff, and uh, that's when he's like, no, there's actually you know Wolfman is just a he's a concept, Everything. but he does love popsicles. We did learn that the fridge is busted. That's right. And they have a lot of popsicles. Weird. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I thought the whole, again, it was very unique for this movie. Something that hadn't really been done too much before it was the fact that uh, it was entirely scored by songs, uh, popular songs. There was no traditional score to this film. And the fact that Wolfman Jack kind of narrates the film in a way, um, along with the music, uh, is very... Uh, unique and, and I thought uh, really helped the story a lot as a sort of nostalgia piece. Yeah. You see, I mean, I think of, of reservoir dogs. I don't know if you've, if you've seen yeah. the Tarantino film, it, that's um, another movie that I think definitely takes cue from, from American graffiti in that, in that regard. Um, kind of like a uh, songs of the a period songs that are that drive that help to drive the action to help to drive the plot of the movie do you know who the uh, the one artist who would not allow their music to be played in the film uh it would have to be frankie uh the four seasons guy Frankie, Frankie Valley. Valley. That's, that's his name. Was it Frankie Valley? No, it was Elvis Presley. Elvis. Okay. Because I was going to say, I think there is some. There actually is some. Uh, um, yes. Yeah, so well, actually, no, they have the list of the... Because the, the whole soundtrack was released. Um, no not, only, not only the originals, uh, but also some of the re-recordings by Flash Cadillac and the Continental Kids uh, who play live at the Sock Hop. A total of 41 films, uh, 41 songs used throughout the films. Yeah, and it looks it looks like it was his um, label. Wouldn't allow... Yes, RCA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was clearing the musical rights had cost approximately $90,000. Yeah, they so, didn't think they could do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, therefore, no money was left over for a traditional film score. That's right. Imagine if they had heard of a little thing called Napster. They were just a little too early. Um, Man, I think the other main thing we haven't talked about is Kurt's storyline. Yeah. Good old Uh, Kurt. In the film, uh, also uh, headed out uh, east. He's apprehensive, though. He's not sure he wants to do it. He goes to the sock hop. Um, some shenanigans happen there, but after that, uh, he sits on a car, which uh, he may or may not have scratched, but he runs into a group of greasers called the Pharaohs. Um, 
who sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, kidnap him um, and make him do several tasks, including stealing coins from arcade machines and hooking a chain to a police car um, before uh, essentially letting him into the Pharaohs, which he doesn't really join, but he he certainly uh, gets their credit, if you will, um, to uh, as, as a member of the gang. Yeah. Um, and I think when, when they're robbing the arcade, he runs into like his, his dad's friends or something and mm-hmm. <laughs> makes for some, uh, some awkwardness, I guess. Um, you know, up to some shenanigans that, that part, I think more than a lot of the, like that part reminded me the most, I think of super bad. It would be like something that would like happen in, in, in super bad. And then just get like really kind of ratcheted up to 11. Basically super bad is kind of this movie, but everything is turned up to like 11 or 12. Like, um, here, I think it, it stays more or less pretty contained. Uh, and yeah. Um, anything else happened with Kurt? He, um, well, you talked about him meeting Wolfman Jack. Right. Um, kind of, and he then goes on the most like, o- like Odyssey, like adventure. He meets he's the star of the of film. I think downs. arguably. Yeah. Yeah. You could, um, is the main that. character. Uh, mm-hmm. he does Wolfman Jack, uh, puts out the phone number. He does get a call on the payphone from the blonde, um, who doesn't reveal her identity and never, never meets her. And then we could talk about the end of the film, which is the, the characters are at the airport. And the question is, are Stephen Kurt, going to go to the east coast but there's a bit of a twist because steve who was assured he was going has decided to stay back with Lori. it's actually kurt who was on the fence now gets on the airplane um and is headed off yes and then everything goes very well for everybody the most insane okay so <laughs> i gotta be honest they all I, great and wonderful and value and and just very long lives right one of the most wackadoo, nothing in this film surprised me until the end. And I wasn't even surprised that they did like a where are they now thing. A lot of films did that. That's not, they didn't invent that. But the idea of the very first, the planes in the air, the very same thing is like John Milner was killed by a drunk driver in 1964. <laughs> and I'm just like, excuse me. And then the next line is Terry was reported missing in action in Vietnam. And I'm like, What? You're, huh? What an insane thing. So it goes from John was killed by a drunk driver in 1964. Terry is reported missing in action in Vietnam in 1965. Steve is an insurance agent in Modesto. And Kurt is a writer living in Canada. <laughs> it's so. Um. I, I know there was another another movie. Stand by me also did something very similar to this. I don't know if you've seen. Yeah, but I think Stand theirs was. Me. I mean, there was music playing during it. It was a little more like this. Just felt really more, abrupt. It was way more tastefully handled in in Stand by Me. The, like because I think the, there was a point to it in, in that movie. There was a there was, yes. it was very intentional. You know, it was like life is is fleeting and can end in. A moment's notice, like you're here one day, gone the next. Like, um, the I think one of the deaths in that one is like I was like waiting online for a burger, and the guy in front of him tried to rob the burger store, and he tried to intervene and got stabbed in the neck and died. Like, it was just a, like a commentary of like he, you know, he did the right thing and still paid the ultimate price. This was just this was just unnecessary. I don't really think I don't really think you had to say anything. You could have just showed the plane flying away and yeah. the credits could roll. But this it, it was it made it even worse with the music. I forget what song was playing, but it was like still like one of those upbeat, like happy 60s songs. While it's talking about John died two years after this, three years after this, Terry died. Like, it's so bizarre. Steve's an insurance agent and probably hates his life. He never left Modesto. <laughs> Kurt moved to Canada. Like, I don't know. It was, it, 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 but the, the fact that it was the, the drunk driving one coming up first, very, very jarring. It was just like, whoa. Yeah. But that was how, that was, that was American graffiti. 
Yes, sir, it was uh, released uh, in 1973, uh, as I mentioned, uh, nominated for Best Picture um, and an incredible uh, box office success, one of the greatest profit-to-cost ratios of a motion picture ever. Um, uh, And then by today, it's earned uh, over $500 million in today's monies uh, between box office grosses and home video sales. Um, Yeah. Pretty incredible. One of the most profitable films ever, which is, you know, understandable given it's low, the low budget it had. Absolutely. Uh, More American Graffiti, the sequel released in 1979. Uh, The vast majority of the characters return. Actually, Richard Dreyfuss is the only principal cast member not to return. Um, And though I won't go through the plot of the whole thing, um, it does uh, actually go through Terry in Vietnam and John Milner. And it actually does tell these stories with these characters. Um, It is not well reviewed. Um, I believe it only has a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes um, and it was a massive box office failure. Um, Yeah, this, uh, it would be very, uh, I think very hard to make a successful sequel to a movie like this. Um, It just wholly unnecessary. Is Harrison Ford in the sequel? Uh, He is. He is in the sequel. And that's what's interesting is uh, in 79, post Star Wars, um, it was also, and some uh, several, uh, Lerner and Shirley had been on the air. So uh, Cindy Williams was much more popular. Um, I just think it, it was yeah, also released. Right smack in the middle of Star Wars. Yeah. And I got to look because the weekend it was released, uh, it was the same weekend as Apocalypse Now and Monty Python's Life of Brian. Uh, so a tough weekend there. Um, just a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes for that. So not very popular. And of course, this would be, um, if you look at films specifically directed by George Lucas, um, he only directed a small handful of films in his career. Um, before this, THX 1138, uh, this, and then Star Wars... And then the three prequels. And those are the only films he's ever actually directed. Um, everything else he's produced, written, um, but just those six films. Hmm. Uh, Sean, I think maybe we should conclude here tonight with a fun fact. I'm going to call them Ford facts. Oh, and I've got some facts as well. So this is great. Go ahead. What do you got for us? Good, good. Um, Facts about the man that we are honoring this summer, uh, Harrison Ford, with our with our uh, summer of Ford. Uh, although he was barely in this movie, um, my fun fact is that uh, Harrison Ford went on tour with the Doors. Did you know this? He went on tour with the band, the Doors. Uh, he um, was. Uh, I think he was he like this was before he was before he was an actor. He did like odd jobs basically, uh, and this was at the time he was um, he was kind of doing these odd jobs um, around uh, L.A. Uh, he was a he w- w- was a, a cameraman, a second unit cameraman for a documentary about the Doors called Feast of Friends. Wow! Uh, so to make the um, footage for this documentary to help to help to help make the footage to film it he shadowed the band for just over a week um he uh got to meet um jim morrison and he uh when the (laughs) famously said uh that after a week and a half of a concert tour he was one step away from joining a jesuit monastery I thought it was cool. I thought it was hip, but I really couldn't keep up with those guys. It was just too much. <laughs> yeah, man, man had kids before he was in Hollywood. I mean, he, you know, he's, he's not the biggest party guy. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, what do you Matt, got I, I have for you, uh, there's an infamous memo associated associated with this, uh, on Lucasfilm stationary. Uh, it, the memo reads here with the suggestions from universal for possible title for American graffiti. 
Just file them away somewhere to discuss upon the completion of the film. These titles are dreadful anyway, but let's keep them for the record. And there's 60 alternative titles for this movie pitched by Universal Pictures. I won't read all of them, although I could because they're insane. You want to hear a few? Yeah, give me give me like your 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 short list. The, my, my top here. Yeah. All right. In no particular order, the young and doomed. Uh the cherry well, coat. Yeah. That would I think that would be fitting given what happens to them at the end. Th- that listen, Universal <laughs> knows. Uh the Cherry Coke Summer. Mm-hmm. The Fast and the Deadly. That would have been a good. I like Cherry Coke uh, Summer. I like that. How about the Violent Four? Um, no, wh- what the violent yeah. four? Yeah, this is real. Burger City Blues, and then Make Out at Burger City. Um, see that would have just been confusing. I would have been like, "Where are the burger?" There, were, I don't think they showed a single burger the whole movie. Uh, buddies, no more. Pals and gals, just simply make out. Uh, Super Cola, the drag years. All I'm hearing uh, is that whoever, so far, whoever made these titles was very horny and also very much really liked Coke. So this make, is they like, yeah. This is wild. Make out, spelled M-A-K-E dash O-U-T, is actually on the list twice, which is kind of crazy. Maybe they're really pushing that. Um, Misadventure, uh, Remember 62 is on this list twice. No More Rock. Uh, also confusing. The race. No more rock. That would make me think. Oh, rock like the music. Okay, I believe so. Uh, Drugs is the first thing, but okay. The yesterday people. Uh, the savage heart. Truly insane. And I'll end with uh, wild is the blood. So there you go. Universal Cherry Pictures. Summer. Cherry Coke Summer would have been a, that would have been a, I think the, that's the only one that I think would, uh, could possibly be better than American Graffiti. Uh, you know, American Graffiti, that was the name Lucas wanted from the total beginning inception of the film. And he fought every it's, step of the way to keep it. It's a, it's a decent title. It's a decent it's, title. Cherry Coke Summer also would have been a pretty good summer, uh, a pretty good title for the movie. Um, uh, yeah, some of these yeah. are. Although I still think the young and the doomed is pretty great. Yes. The young um, and the doomed. And it's, it's very Lucas too. Oh yeah. Um, now Matt, we've watched this film and as we do, whenever we do these series, uh, we have to score the film, uh, on a rating scale. Cause we're going to compare all these films against each other. Uh, now you can pick any scale you want. Um, but you do have to rate this film. I don't mind going first on uh, uh, this first week of uh, our Ford summer. I think uh, I enjoyed American Graffiti. I thought it was interesting. I'm glad I watched it. I don't think I'll ever watch it again, but it was an interesting piece of Americana history uh, captured on celluloid that I enjoyed watching. Film generally looked good, sounded good. Uh, So I enjoyed it. As a Harrison Ford film, it's it's N.A. Not applicable. It's not really a Harrison Ford film. But I enjoyed it anyway. So on a scale of one to ten, uh, ten cent cherry cokes, I'm going to give this eight cherry cokes. Nice. I uh, did enjoy your rating scale. Um, I'm uh, I'm I'm going to do something a little different for mine. I think when we did the Fast and Furious movies, I felt like the the one to ten scale was a little bit broad for uh, sure for the 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 movies. So for this summer. The summer of Ford, uh, I'm going to give it a rating of the, between um, one and three. Three is so every every one three would be the best, one the worst. Um, and right now I'm, I'm going to need your help, John, and maybe help from the folks at home. I've come up with th- the 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 name for three. My my three rating, which this movie is definitely not getting. But the coveted three rating is going to be it belongs in a museum. Um, and I just need two more Ford quotes to complete my my rating here. So what do you think? One. 
I'm just gonna... It belongs in a museum. Uh, here we go. Top 10 Harrison Ford lines. <laughs> um, Laugh it up, fuzzball? That's okay. Laugh it up, fuzzball is going to be one a number one rating, I think. Um, no, nah, maybe I'll make that a two. There's got to be something... Classic. Mm, I'll have to keep looking here to see if anything comes up because uh, he's in a lot of uh, never tell me the odds. OK, I might workshop this before the next episode, but um, I think I have a bad feeling about I'm this gonna... might be your one. I have a yeah, that's a good one too. That's uh that's uh that yeah, I like that. I have a bad feeling about this. I also saw um there was a a quote I think from I think it's from Chris Kingdom of the Crystal Skull where he says it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. Sure. Uh I'm going to go with I have a bad feeling about this. I have a bad feeling about this. You you know and also another one laugh it up fuzzball is two, two and then it belongs in a museum is three and then I might I might so give you I'm, one for a zero if we get a Harrison Ford movie yeah. so bad uh, I'm in it for the money okay. I'm not in it yeah I'm not in this for your revolution right he says something like yes. that in uh, yes. Star Wars yeah uh, anyway I think that's great Matt so where where do you rate this one this movie definitely I think it's a solid laugh it up fuzzball. Uh, it's a solid uh, two on the Harrison Ford scale. An enjoyable uh, film. Ford scale here. Um, if we want to even go higher than three, maybe we'll call that a Harrison four. I don't know. Mm. We might have a have a Harrison four on here. Harrison four. All right. Um, but this is awesome. this is a laugh it up fuzzball. This is um, it was an enjoyable movie. I'm glad that I saw it. Had many many flaws, but for all its flaws, I I genuinely liked it. Um, and I can understand how it is, you know, considered a, a critical piece of uh, film as it is. It's, it's kind of held up to a very high standard and well-deserved. Well, and this means, Matt, we have now talked about one third of all George Lucas directed films on the show. So think about that. Wow. We might have to come up with a, a Lucas scale. Well, it's if we just watch well, we the three prequels, the we'll get a lot of the way there. Maybe we'll just have them on the show. Maybe we'll just do a big uh, Lucas-based uh, series. <laughs> we'll, we'll just finish it off, and he can come on here and, and talk to us about uh, all his all his his movie making shenanigans. Think that'll happen, Sean? Hundred percent. He's got nothing to do. The, he, yeah. What does he do? Building a museum? He's got nothing to do. He could come on um, and he could help us rename the show. Do we need a new name? So good at we, cherry. We I think we should call ourselves Cherry Coke Summer. Okay, that, that would be, be fun. Should that be the it's name? Cherry should that be the name of the series this summer? Cherry Coke Summer with John and Matt. Cherry Coke Summer starring Harrison Harrison Ford. Ford. <laughs> Perfect. John and Matt. With Sean and Matt. Parentheses with little, Sean and Matt. Make a little graphic of like Harrison Ford drinking a cherry Coke. This is it might get the attention itself. of his agent, and then maybe he'll appear on our show or he'll sue us for defamation. Yeah, well, I, listen, either dude, one or the other will be on the Wikipedia page. Listen, it's a win, win, win. And Matt, I'm excited because we've gotten through our first film here of Cherry Coke Summer, but next week we have what may be the wackiest movie in our whole film lineup. Uh, for yes. some reason, we'll be watching 1979's The Frisco Kid, starring Gene Wilder and, of course, Harrison Ford. Uh, Matt, this thing looks insane, and I'm concerned it's not very good. Uh, I Okay, so I will preface this. <laughs> this is the only movie on the list that I've actually seen already. So I think I think you're going to I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. That's I'm going prediction. in with an open mind. So my prediction, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. Um, I watched it a couple years ago um, and 
you really can't go wrong with Gene Wilder, right? Like he's I don't I don't think he's been in a bad movie. I don't think the universe would allow it. So listen, you you had me at Jewish Western. Uh, I'm very excited. So come back next week. We'll be watching the Frisco Kid. But until then, um, we're out of time. So we're going to wrap it up here. Um, be sure to go to our website, upfordebate.tv, for links to all our episodes. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts so you're getting all these movie talks as they're coming out week by week. Uh, you can get wherever you get podcasts. You can also contact us at TV on Twitter, email us upfordebatetv at gmail.com. That's going to do it for us, though. So we appreciate you all being here. On behalf of Matt, I'm Sean. Uh, And we'll see you next time for another fantastic episode of Up for Debate.